Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of graphic material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults. In part one of our exploration of David Koresh and the Branch Davidians, we explored Koresh's early life and his rise within the group. If you haven't listened to part one, you may want to jump back and check it out before listening to part two. In part two, we'll learn more about Koresh's followers, or as he called them, students, and what he preached to them. We'll explore why people stayed in the group, even as Koresh limited their basic freedoms, emotionally isolated them, and led them into a violent clash with the U.S. government. We'll delve into the actual confrontation between the Branch Davidians and the U.S. government and see how the fatally botched ATF raid developed into a 51-day standoff with the FBI that ended in flames, killing scores of Branch Davidians, including Koresh, and almost two dozen children. Vanessa is going to lead the way on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Greg. And just a reminder, if you're as fascinated by cults as we are, you can listen to previous episodes of Cults on your favorite podcast directory. Don't forget to subscribe while you're there because new episodes come out every Tuesday. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review wherever you listen. It helps people like you find us. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. And I do not appreciate it, and never will I ever appreciate somebody coming here with two helicopters and cattle, cattle trailers and all that, and uh, pushing people around with guns. Hey, I'll meet you at the doorstep any day, you know, and somebody will get hurt. If you want to keep playing that game, I'm talking to you. Somebody's going to get hurt. God speaks to me. I have a message to present. You may not believe that. If you don't believe that, then believe this. You come point guns in the direction of my wives and my kids, damn it, I'll, I'll meet you at the door any time. And I'm sorry some of you guys got shot, but, uh, hey, God will have to sort that out, won't he? These are the words of David Koresh, recorded by his right-hand man, Steve Schneider, after the February 28, 1993 ATF raid that killed four federal agents and six Branch Davidians. The tape was sent out to the FBI near the beginning of the 51-day siege. The ATF raid and subsequent 51-day standoff with the FBI are the most deadly confrontations between federal agencies and a religious or ideologically motivated group to have occurred on U.S. soil. In 1993, just prior to the raid, Koresh and his multiracial and multi-ethnic group of 130 students lived at the Mount Carmel compound 10 miles outside Waco, Texas. Popularly, they're known as the Branch Davidians. But by 1993, Koresh wanted them to call themselves the Students of the Seven Seals. And by the end of the standoff, they favored being called Koreshians. But there weren't many people left to make that name stick. We'll go into more detail about the group's beliefs later on, but at the most fundamental level, they were a doomsday cult. They believed the events leading up to the apocalypse, as laid out in the Book of Revelation, were already happening. Their one shot at eternal life was at stake, and they believed Koresh was the man who could lead them there. But by the end of the government standoff at Waco, most of the group had burned to dust. 
Koresh has only a few followers left scattered throughout the world. Before we get into the events of the ATF raid, let's try and get a better understanding of the beliefs David Koresh espoused to his followers and who they were. David Thibodeau, a drummer Koresh recruited in L.A. and a survivor of Waco, wrote in his book that while Koresh had many appealing ideas that resonated with Thibodeau, sometimes things got a bit far out. Koresh told Thibodeau about a critical vision he had during a 1985 trip to Israel. This is the vision in which Koresh believed God anointed him. Koresh said, quote, While I was standing on Mount Zion, I met up with these angels, these presences made up of pure light. They were warriors surrounding the Merkava, the heavenly throne, riding on fiery horses armed with flaming swords. They only allow those who can reveal the seals into the higher realm, into those innumerable worlds that exist alongside our own. Koresh said he was taken up by the angels to meet God and given the key to the scriptures. Quote, I knew that it was my destiny to unlock the seals and open the way for our community. End quote. It's a pretty fantastical story, but Koresh reported having visions since he was a child, so it's not that far-fetched that if he had a condition that was causing complex hallucinations, he was still having them. Is it possible Koresh was making it all up? Well, there's only one person who knows for sure, and Koresh isn't here to tell us. Whatever the origin of his visions, it does seem like Koresh believed much of what he preached. It was his all-consuming passion. We know this was an important vision to Koresh. He learns from it that he's the lamb who will open the seven seals, which is really important to how things play out in Waco. Do you want to take a stab at explaining the seven seals? I'm no theologian, but I can tackle the nuts and bolts. The seven seals are part of the book of Revelation, which is mostly ignored by many mainstream Christian denominations, but the most important book of the Bible to eschatologically oriented churches. Eschatological, meaning that they're primarily concerned with the end times. Right. The seven seals essentially unlock a series of events that have to happen before the second coming and the last judgment. Basically, in the Bible, St. John has a vision of Christ holding a scroll with seven seals. As each seal breaks, catastrophic events unfold that shatter the world. These events make way for a new heaven and earth. Each of the first four seals releases a horseman. They bring war, famine, plague, and death. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. Precisely. The fifth seal unleashes the cries of those who have been killed because they've testified to the words of God, martyrs. They're given white robes to wear while they wait for the rest of the believers to be martyred. The opening of the sixth seal brings a massive earthquake, a blood-red moon and black sun. The entire cosmos begins to crumble and stars fall from the sky. The seventh seal brings heralding angels. These aren't the doe-eyed angels you see on greeting cards. When these angels blow their trumpets, a rain of destruction is unleashed that dwarfs even the sixth seal's chaos. A third of all living creatures are killed. After the seventh trumpet blasts, things are supposed to improve because the kingdom of heaven will align with the kingdom of earth. But there are still seven bowlfuls of God's wrath that will come before it's all over. That's enough to give anyone nightmares, Vanessa. It's scary just talking about it. And if you put yourself in the shoes of Koresh's followers, who believed it was really going to happen, and happen soon, it gets easier to understand why they gave up so much to follow him. Something horrible was coming. And if they weren't on the right side of things with God, their punishment would be unfathomably severe. And eternal. The seven seals are the crux of what Koresh was focused on after his 1985 vision. Many people think Koresh thought he was the Messiah. However, the scholars most closely acquainted with him, James Tabor and Eugene Gallagher, who tried to help with the FBI with a biblical justification to break the siege, say that Koresh believed his vision at Mount Zion revealed him to be the Lamb, an anointed one, who would open the seals and bring forth the apocalypse. To the untrained ear, it can sound like he thinks he's the second coming of Christ, which is part of the apocalyptic narrative, but he saw himself in this slightly different but still exalted role. So Koresh had this prophetic vision in 1985, two years before the shootout with George Roden that ushered in Koresh's return to Mount Carmel. Having been previously ousted from Mount Carmel by his rival, George, Koresh was casting around looking for direction. 
He already believed he could be martyred, but in 1985, he thought it would happen in Israel. Which was part of why he was exploring options for his group there. It wasn't until he reclaimed Mount Carmel that he believed the final showdown would be there, against the U.S. government. He'd already felt they were outsiders and an enemy of his cause, since like many narcissists, persecution and victimhood was an intrinsically powerful part of his psychology. But after the U.S. started the Gulf War, Koresh came to believe the U.S. government was the Babylon represented in Revelation. It's important to understand how Koresh saw himself, because it's a critical piece of what he's asking others to believe. He saw himself as a victim, for one thing, so anything bad that happened to him, any government interference, could be read as part of that martyr's narrative. Additionally, the slight humility of him not thinking he's the Messiah, but rather this other messenger anointed by God, bolstered his credibility with his followers. He's not asking quite as much. Right. Let's get a better understanding of the followers who were with Koresh at the time of the ATF raid. We know that after his 1989 New Light revelation, when Koresh had annulled the marriages of all his followers and asserted himself as the only man who could have sex with the women followers, some people, including one of his teenage wives, Robin Bunds, and her mother, left. And Koresh lost control of the Pomona House in California, which the Bunds owned. But Koresh still had a substantial following. On the day of the ATF raid, it's believed there were nearly 100 Branch Davidians on the grounds at Mount Carmel. Most of them were minor players in Koresh's self-styled organization, but they were all being prepared for a confrontation with the law. After the New Light Doctrine, Koresh became increasingly unpredictable and hot-headed. In late 1990, he started regularly screening violent war movies for his followers as part of their training. That said, the women didn't have much, if any, standing. They were there to rear children and serve Koresh sexually on his whim. Koresh's top lieutenants were known as the Mighty Men, after the biblical warriors who protected King David. These 20 loyal men were critical to the defense of Mount Carmel. They were all well-versed in the use of AK-47s and M16s. The Mighty Men were responsible for training other cult members, including kids, how to shoot to kill. The highest-ranking Mighty Men were Douglas Wayne Martin, 42, and Steve Schneider, 48. Douglas Wayne Martin, known to folks as Wayne, was Koresh's most trusted advisor and one of the most surprising members of his cult. Wayne and his wife Sheila had seven children, a few of them adults, one severely disabled. At least four lived with them at Mount Carmel. Wayne was college-educated, a Harvard-trained lawyer who previously taught at the law school at North Carolina Central University in Durham. While living a rugged life with no running water out at Mount Carmel, Wayne practiced law in town, diligently turning his earnings over to Koresh to help support the Branch Davidians. Wayne was well-known to county judges and even close friends with Waco City Councilmen who spoke of Wayne as a congenial lunchmate. Wayne was a conscientious lawyer, he actually managed to send money out of the compound during the standoff with the FBI in order to compensate clients he could no longer represent. He was described by another lawyer as a kind man and a devoted father. Steve Schneider was Koresh's top lieutenant. Unlike the amiable Wayne, Steve was mercurial, sometimes going into an intense rage. His wife was one of the first women Koresh claimed after his 1989 New Light revelation. Judy Schneider became Judy Schneider Koresh. As angry as Steve was about the dissolution of his marriage, he was fiercely loyal to Koresh. He told federal negotiators that his leader had, quote, powers that we are not aware of, and for us to even challenge him, we're making a big mistake, unquote. Steve had some college education and had hoped to become a minister before he fell in with Koresh. Steve managed one of the group's businesses, a music production company. Messiah Cyrus Productions recorded Koresh's music and released it in the Waco community. Songs like Madman in Waco. Mad Man in Waco has a sort of tongue-in-cheek humor that was disarming to his followers. He wasn't defensive about his image to outsiders. He embraced it as a badge of honor, one he'd happily go down fighting for. And needless to say, the group was well-connected to the legal arms trade through their on-site gun shop, the Mag Bag, and well-armed. 
Using Magbag, which started in 1990, they trafficked in weapons and parts. Koresh and a couple of his followers, Paul Fata and Michael Schroeder, traveled to gun shows all over Texas and used the profitable business to raise money to support the Branch Davidians. Michael Schroeder was a musician, a drummer like David Thibodeau. Steve Schneider met Michael and his wife Kathy in the late 1980s and told them about Koresh. Soon, Michael and Kathy drove cross-country for a visit to hear Koresh preach and liked what they heard. In 1989, they piled their children into a beat-up old van and took off for Mount Carmel to join the group. Michael's mother said the van was so run down she didn't know if they'd make it. Somehow, she knew she'd never see her son again. Michael and Kathy were seekers, and Koresh's message spoke to them. Kathy was pregnant at the time, but they were still separated upon arrival under the New Light Doctrine. Koresh had boots on the ground in Australia and California and used his followers' homes as impromptu operating bases as needed. He sent Michael to one of those spots in California to help recruit more soldiers for God. Michael didn't meet his newborn son until six months after his birth. It's a great example of how Koresh manipulated people into giving up their most important ties in order to reconfigure their minds into a group orientation that he could lead. It's a common tactic of cult leaders who have an instinct for how to lure people into handing their autonomy over to the leader. Once Michael returned to Texas, he frequently slept at an auto shop where he worked. Like other husbands, he primarily saw his wife during Bible study, under the watchful eyes of Koresh. Koresh didn't like the men to spend time with their children. The parent-child bond could threaten his control, but Kathy arranged secret visits so Michael could see his son. Like Wayne and Michael, many Davidians had jobs in the community and turned their wages over to Koresh. But gun dealing was a particularly profitable business, with the added bonus of allowing the group to easily build an arsenal. You might be wondering why they needed an arsenal. Koresh felt the pressures of outside culture. He knew his views and his practices, particularly polygamy, and having sex with his wives, some of whom were children as young as 11, were not only outside the mainstream, but also considered criminal activity. He knew he was on the government radar. In February of 1992, a full year before the ATF raid, the Texas Department of Human Services and two sheriff's deputies paid the compound a visit to investigate claims risen from the Kerry Jewell custody battle, namely that Koresh was sexually abusing girls. This amplified Koresh's beliefs that he would be martyred for his cause, but he wasn't planning to go down without a fight. He prepared for armed conflict and carried a Glock, which he kept close at hand even when he slept. Also in 1992, a couple of the Mighty Men were alleged to have traveled to California to pick up a machine gun conversion kit from the Bunce Pomona house. The Bunce had found the kit after the Branch Davidians cleared out, but saved it in the garage in case Koresh ever came for it. Even though they'd left the group, they couldn't entirely escape Koresh's hold on them. In a way, they were still protecting him. If they had fully cut ties, they might have just gotten rid of it. But he had enough residual power over the Buns family that they stored his property for him. Ultimately, it was this type of weapons-related intelligence that brought the ATF to Mount Carmel's doorstep. The ATF was first alerted to the Branch Davidians' penchant for heavy arms in the summer of 1992 when a UPS delivery driver noticed weapons, as well as grenade casings, inside a torn package that he delivered to Mount Carmel. Though the grenades were inert, someone with the right skill set and materials could get them working. In the ATF's 1993 raid warrant, it states that when the UPS driver went to Mount Carmel to deliver packages, he saw several manned observation posts and believed the observers were armed. The warrant also includes information from the Texas Department of Human Services about their 1992 visit to investigate the sexual abuse allegations. One of their employees, Mrs. Sparks, reported, quote, She talked to a young boy about seven or eight years old. The child said that he could not wait to grow up and be a man. When Ms. Sparks asked him why he was in such a hurry to grow up, he replied that when he grew up, he would get a long gun, just like all the other men there, end quote. Though the jurisdictional motivation for the ATF's raid of Mount Carmel was the suspected illegal weapons, the warrant cites multiple sources alleging the sexual abuse of young girls. One source cited in the warrant was Robin Bunds. It describes how at 17 she'd married Koresh, but left him after the New Light Doctrine when he struck up a sexual relationship with her mother. Quote, 
According to Mrs. Buns, Koresh has regular sexual relations with young girls there. The girls' ages are from 11 years old to adulthood. End quote. Mark Bro, who helped Kiri's father get custody, said that back in 1988. He was once asked by Koresh who he thought was Koresh's favorite wife. Bro guessed Koresh's first and only legal wife, Rachel. But Koresh replied that it was Rachel's sister. Quote, Can you believe it, Mark? She's been with me since she was 12 years old. Unquote. Protecting the children at Mount Carmel was the top priority for law enforcement officials. The accusations of Koresh's sexual abuse lit a fire in their hearts, and that may have been part of what drove them to act so brashly on the actual day of the raid, never expecting what Koresh and his followers had in store for them. Once the Branch Davidians were on the ATF's radar, they launched an investigation. In January of 1993, they moved a couple of undercover agents in across the street, including Robert Rodriguez. He began visiting the group, ostensibly to hear Koresh's teachings, but he was really trying to glean more information on the group's weapons. David Thibodeau claims Koresh knew Rodriguez was undercover from the start, yet he still welcomed him onto the land and into Bible study sessions. It didn't take a message from God to know they were being watched. The compound was under surveillance by helicopter, and the increase in flights overhead tipped Koresh off in a big way. Koresh knew from years of recruiting that he could turn folks looking for a spiritual direction to his way of thinking in unlikely places like bars and pool halls. He figured Rodriguez should get a chance to become one of his followers, too. Koresh was that confident in himself and his message. During the months Rodriguez spent visiting the compound, he befriended Koresh. In conversations with the FBI during the siege, Koresh said that Rodriguez was a good guy and that he loved him. For his part, Rodriguez couldn't confirm that the Branch Davidians had illegal weapons, but it was clear they'd amassed a substantial arsenal and had the ability to convert semi-automatic to automatic weapons. There was probable cause for a search, but the ATF lied and said there was an on-site meth lab in order to get additional tactical training for the raid from the military. On February 25th, the United States District Court of the Western District of Texas issued the ATF warrants for a February 28th arrest of David Koresh and a search of the compound. Agents were authorized to search for various types of assault rifles and items needed to convert them to be fully automatic, heavy artillery, as well as homemade grenades and bomb-making materials. In a post-siege lawsuit filed by surviving Branch Davidians against the government, a Texas Ranger testified that, quote, about 300 assault rifles and pistols were found in the charred remains of the Branch Davidian compound hours after the structure burned to the ground, end quote. That's a substantial weapons cache. That's for sure, Vanessa. And it plays heavily in what happened during the ATF raid that ignited the infamous events in Waco. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, back to the story. On February 28, 1993, the ATF prepared to serve a no-knock warrant to Mount Carmel, which is just what it sounds like. Agents don't have to knock or ring a bell before sweeping in to execute their search. It gives them the element of surprise. In the preceding days, over 100 agents and support staff flooded into Waco to prepare for the search of the compound, filling local motels. That's hard to hide. Mm -hmm. Word got out and filtered to the press. On the morning of February 28th, the day of the raid, a reporter from KWTX-TV got lost on the way to Mount Carmel and asked a local postman for assistance. Turned out the postman's brother-in-law lived on the compound. His brother-in-law was David Koresh the surprise raid wasn't a surprise anymore. Undercover agent Rodriguez was at the compound studying with Koresh when he received the warning call. Koresh told Rodriguez he knew the raid was coming. Rodriguez realized Koresh knew he was with the feds. His cover was blown. Rodriguez took off. It's interesting to note that there was no friction between the men. Koresh wasn't panicked. He was happy to let Rodriguez leave. Koresh had predicted a confrontation with the government, and it was about to happen. The Mighty Men and others sprang into action. They're reported to have put on black armored clothing that was sewn by their very own former wives. A federal affidavit said that Wayne Martin wore a necklace of hand grenades. The women and children, for the most part, went into hiding, though at least one woman, a former police officer, took part in the firefight. She was one of the six Branch Davidians who died that morning. 
Rodriguez notified the ATF that the Branch Davidians knew the ATF was coming. The ATF plan was predicated on a surprise visit, but instead of postponing the operation, the ATF leadership determined that they would go ahead with the raid. They wanted to rush in, hopeful that the Branch Davidians wouldn't have time to get ready for them. In hindsight, it was an incredibly foolish decision. They were looking to take a sizable compound. There were dozens of vehicles on site, including buses. The buildings were arranged in a tight rectangular formation with a large pool along the back left side. The buildings included tactically significant structures like water tower and a watchtower. There were group living quarters, Koresh's living quarters, a gym used for storage and multiple concrete bunkers. Reaching the compound wouldn't be a simple task. But within hours, at 9.30 a.m., the ATF attempted to execute their warrants. 100 agents piled into two cattle trailers and hid under large tarps. There were helicopters with gunmen incoming. The communication among the ATF crew was shoddy. Some knew that the Branch Davidians might be heavily armed, while others did not. There's heated debate about which side fired the first shot, but what we know for sure is that a massive gun battle ensued that lasted over two hours. Survivor Kathy Schroeder said in an interview, quote, I saw the cattle trucks pull up out front and the men coming out. They're all in black and they have guns. Then I heard shots and I ducked down, end quote. Kathy and her kids pulled everything out from under the bed to get under for cover. Bullets pierced the water jugs in the room and the liquid drained to the floor. The kids were crying and the shooting lasted so long that one of them fell asleep under the bed. Wayne Martin and David Koresh were stationed at different places in the compound. Wayne, the Harvard-educated lawyer, called 911. This is part of that call. 911, what's your emergency? Uh, 75 men around our building and they're shooting at us in Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel? Yeah, tell them there are children and women in here and they're calling off. All right, all right. Uh, hello? I hear gunfire. Oh, shit. Hello? Who is this? The Branch Davidians felt like they were under attack. And the ATF were taking fire from a group they suspected was illegally armed and raping young girls. To top it off, there was no present communication link between the local police and the ATF. So Sheriff Lynch was taking calls from the compound while scrambling to get a line to the ATF so he could try and broker a ceasefire. It wasn't long before David Koresh himself called 911. This is Dave Koresh. Mount Carmel Center, we're being shot all up out here. The call started out as a logical cry for help, but it wasn't long before Koresh abandoned talk of the present situation and got into theology, or what the FBI came to call Bible babble. Yeah, this is Lynch. Hey, Lynch. Yeah, that's that kind of a funny name there. <laughs> Oh, uh, listen, no, listen. Now, who am I speaking with? Uh, this is David Koresh. Okay, David. The Notorious. Why did you guys do that for? Well, you brought a bunch of guys out here, and you killed some of my children. We told you we wanted to talk. No, how come you guys try to be ATF agents? How come you try to be so big all the time? Okay, David. Now, there's a bunch of us dead, and there's a bunch of you guys dead. Now, now that's your fault. Okay, let, let's try to resolve this now. Tell me this. Now, you have casualties. How many casualties? Do you want to try to work something out? ATF is pulling back. We're trying to... Uh... Why didn't you do that first? Okay, all I'm, all I'm doing is handling communications. I can't give you that answer, David. Okay. Okay? Now, here's the deal. Yeah, you pull your guys out, and I want to talk. Yeah. You're the man that I need to talk to, David. Yeah, well, really, let me tell you something. Okay. In our great country here, the United States... You know, God's given us a rich history of patronage. No, we're not trying to be bad guys. Okay. But the thing of it is, is this. There is a God who sits on the throne. I know it sounds crazy to you, but you're no, going to no. find out sooner or later. Sure, there, 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 are seven, sure. there are seven seals in okay. his right hand. The question of theology has overstepped. Who's the one that opened that book? Now, that's what I've done. Okay. It's your Bible. There are seven seals. Now, there's some things in that Bible that have been 
held his mysteries. Yes, sir. About Christ. Yes, sir. Now, when it says in Revelation 22, Behold, I come quickly, my reward is with me. The statement is, What reward did Christ receive in heaven from his Father? He received a book with seven seals. Yes, sir. Now, when I'm told throughout theological departments that they're going to ruin me, because of what I present out of the book, just because they can't present it, and I can't, there's a meaning to that. Okay. Now, in the prophecies, it right. says... Let me, can I interrupt you for a minute? Sure. All right. We can talk theology, but right no, now... This is life. This is okay. life and death. The theology that, we know is about. life and death. Yes, sir. Koresh sounds so cold. He reported that some of his people, even children, were dead, with absolutely no feeling in his voice at all. It's not clear that any kids died that day, so that could explain his lack of emotion, but he nevertheless expresses no grief or remorse about any of the deaths. He's more interested in talking about his views on the Bible than he is dealing with the serious situation on the ground. If there's any one recorded moment that points to the very strong possibility that Koresh was devoid of empathy, it's this one. Let's listen to a little more of the call. We've known about this. I've been teaching this for four years. Okay. We, we, we knew you were coming and everything. You see, yes. we knew before you even knew. It's a little hard to make out what he says here, but he says, quote, I've been teaching this for four years. We knew you were coming and everything, end quote. He's not talking about the fact that they were tipped off. He's talking about his own ability to read the signs in Revelation. He's saying he's known that the government was coming after him for years and that in preparation, he's been preaching to his followers about the confrontation. It's another example of his high level of narcissism. Mm -hmm. And it's significant that he was priming his followers for war for many years. The self-fulfilling prophecy they found themselves in the middle of had the effect of increasing their loyalty to Koresh. They believed he must have been right all along. This is the war he predicted. So he must be right about other things too. And if he was right about the coming apocalypse, they definitely didn't want to leave his side. They believed that by leaving, they would be giving up eternal life. But as an outsider, another story is clear. And it's a lot less prophetic and a lot more logical. At minimum, Koresh knew that the polygamous House of David was frowned on by American society in 1993. On top of that, in his supposed quest for more offspring, he'd been having sex with many of his wives, some of whom were just children themselves. These facts, not to mention the weapons violations, made government intervention not just likely, but inevitable. It didn't take a direct line to God to know that the government would come after Koresh. As testament to how ill-prepared the ATF was and how well-armed the Branch Davidians were, toward the end of the gun battle, the ATF was running out of ammunition, while the Branch Davidians were still ready to fire at will. While the average time for a gun battle with law enforcement is under one minute, the February 28th ATF shootout with the Branch Davidians lasted over two hours. When the shooting finally started to die down, the ATF was running out of ammunition but the Branch Davidians were still locked and loaded. Once a temporary ceasefire was brokered, the ATF agents were able to come in and clear out their casualties. The local police encouraged Koresh to accept medical assistance for the Branch Davidians, but Koresh said none of them were injured seriously enough and they didn't want help. He didn't reveal that the Branch Davidians had already lost six people, and he himself was wounded by gunfire on his left wrist and hip. One of his wounded followers later told negotiators on the phone that she didn't want to come out for treatment. She'd rather die standing up for their cause. It begs the question, what was their cause at this point? And for Koresh, the conflict itself was a means to an end. The longer the standoff dragged on, the more heated it got, and the more it bolstered every claim he'd made to his followers about the confrontation he'd predicted, the persecution he felt the world had in store for him, and supposed end of the world that was near. Though typically for a raid like this, law enforcement has emergency medical services on standby. This time, they did not. It was just one of the series of gross oversights by the agents in charge. A hasty decision to rush in when they knew they were expected. Poor communication with their forces. Poor communication among law enforcement agencies. Insufficient ammunition. And no on-site emergency services. Any one of those would be considered an egregious oversight. The ATF took the raid seriously enough to bring a huge cadre of agents, but they didn't take the Branch Davidians seriously enough to realize that they were about to engage in an all-out war. And the botched raid was just the beginning. 
The FBI stepped in within hours to attempt to try and resolve the conflict. Conversations primarily between Branch Davidians, Koresh, Wayne, and Steve, continued with Sheriff Lynch and the ATF's Jim Cavanaugh as the FBI got their feet on the ground and strategized. Koresh was allowed to broadcast his religious teachings on a Dallas radio station and also do a phone interview with CNN. Cable news was still fairly new in 1993. Over 50 million households had cable TV compared to less than 20 million the decade before. The Branch Davidians went from a fairly unknown group to players on an international stage almost overnight. And for a man like Koresh, this was literally a dream come true. All eyes on him, and prolific talker that he was, he'd eat up as much attention as he could get. He knew he had a platform to get his teaching out to a mass audience, and he was determined to use it to the full extent he could. On the following day, March 1st, President Bill Clinton was updated on the situation. He agreed to FBI Director William Sessions' approach of wading through negotiations with Koresh and an attempt at a peaceful solution. As the day dragged on, 10 children were sent out of the compound. A small number of adults left as well, including two elderly women. Kathy Schroeder later told a Florida paper, quote, None of the children really wanted to leave, but David said children under the age of 12 are not accountable. It was David's decision for them to leave. It was different for me. Even if we had died, we would all die and be eternally together. I thought, I'm sending my kids out to Babylon, to a world full of evil, end quote. But in reality, many children under the age of 12 died in the fire that happened 51 days later. Even after everything that happened, Kathy has retained some level of distance from the reality of the situation. It's a testament to the power Koresh had over people, even ones like Kathy who weren't diehard believers. The warping of his followers' mind was extreme and wasn't something that would just go away given time. Hours after the ceasefire, Kathy heard shots fired out in a field. She believed her husband Michael had been taken down by the FBI while trying to return to the compound. She was right. What she didn't know was that his body would lie there where it fell for four days before it was removed. That anger may have made it hard for Kathy to come around to a more objective perspective about Koresh and what she'd experienced. By 5 p.m. March 1st, the FBI had taken full command of the situation. Koresh was extremely agitated that the armored vehicles had taken up closer tactical positions, and that the phone lines were disabled except for an open line to the negotiators. Koresh insisted the group wasn't planning a mass suicide, which was of great concern to the authorities, particularly considering that there were many more children inside the compound. But no one felt particularly reassured. Negotiations continued into the early hours of March 3rd. A viable agreement was reached. Koresh promised to surrender after a tape of his religious teachings was broadcast on national television. Again, his main concern was exposure for his ideas. The safety of his followers was secondary. Koresh got what he wanted. At 1.30 p.m., the tape was broadcast by the Christian Broadcasting Network. But by 6 p.m., Koresh had reversed himself. He said he got another message from God. God told him to stay put. The FBI negotiators were in a tough position. They were trained in hostage negotiation. But in this situation, they had a group of people who were captive to an ideology, rather than someone with a literal gun to their heads. From the Branch Davidians' perspective, they had more to fear from the FBI than by staying hunkered down with Koresh. If everything went up in flames, as Koresh had been preaching for years, they would still have eternal life. If they left their leader's side, they'd be doomed to eternal damnation like all the other non-believers. This was the moment of truth. March 3rd passed with a lot of religious ramblings by Koresh. He talked to the negotiators a lot about how he was anointed to unlock the seven seals. Some survivors reported that he told them that they were now in the midst of the fifth seal. The fifth seal was when they would be martyred in a moment of great persecution. They were ready to die and then wait for the other martyrs before they got to live forever in the new kingdom that would be ushered in after the full cycle of seals was complete. Koresh also described his gunshot wounds. He said, quote, I've tried to sit up, which I can't do, and also my hip, like I say it's, you know, being shot's a dramatic thing. It shocks the body and plus, you know, like I said, it cracked or went through or did something at the top part of my hip bone. 
because it hit me from the side of my belly, headed over and hit the hip, and then went around and out, kind of like towards my rear, end quote. In spite of his serious injuries, Koresh was alert and showing no signs of waning in his fervor. On March 4th, Koresh spent nearly eight hours on the phone with negotiators. Tensions ran high. There was disagreement among the FBI's ranks as to the best path forward. Tear gas was floated as an option to flush the remaining Branch Davidians out of the compound, but authorities knew there were a lot of children left inside. Tear gas had obviously never been tested on kids before, and everyone was worried about the potential long-term impacts of kids being exposed, especially in the high quantities being proposed. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now, back to cults. March 5, 1993, brought terrifying news. Nine-year-old Heather Jones left the compound with a note from her mother pinned to her jacket. It said that once the children have left the compound, the adults will die. That note drove home the question on the minds of everyone in law enforcement. Would this standoff end in mass suicide? Koresh and Steve Schneider repeatedly denied to the FBI that the group had plans for mass suicide, but the FBI didn't trust them. Some people who had already left the cult reported that Koresh preached with regularity about how they'd all eventually have to die for him. And children who'd been released earlier said things to psychologists that led them to believe mass suicide was possible. But there are also those who believed that Koresh didn't plan to commit mass suicide, that he just wanted to get his message out to the world, and once he was satisfied that he'd done that, he'd step down from the proverbial ledge. There was continued disagreement among law enforcement as to the likelihood of mass suicide. And again, of extreme concern were the dozens of children still behind compound walls. The FBI determined that the Branch Davidians had ample weapons and ammunition to fight back if the FBI tried to breach the compound and enough food to last about a year. From March 6th to 8th, conversation between the FBI and Koresh and Steve went nowhere. The FBI delivered milk for the children, and Koresh sent out a tape of children who said they were happy with Koresh. He pointed out a number of his own children, including his oldest son, Cyrus, who he fathered with his first teenage wife, Rachel. Cyrus was only eight years old. On March 9th, the FBI cut the power to Mount Carmel. Continued armored vehicle movement agitated Koresh and Steve. The FBI saw weapons in the compound windows and men putting plywood covers over windows with cutouts for gun barrels. Against the wishes of the negotiators, tactical units went rogue a number of times and put pressure on the compound by moving vehicles closer and getting in more threatening positions. Koresh didn't like it. He refused to talk until power was restored. The power became an on-again, off-again bargaining chip. March 10th and 11th came and went with little progress. The newly elected President Clinton's Attorney General Janet Reno, first woman to be in the position, was sworn in on March 12th and brought up to speed on the situation. That same day, Kathy Schroeder exited the compound, reiterating the group's claim that there would be no mass suicide. Years later, she told a reporter that the reason she'd left was because she'd been caught smoking. Koresh said her, quote, reckless disregard for God's law was going to cause the whole group to be held back. End quote. That, and concern for her kids, who were already out, is why she walked. Upon leaving, Kathy was arrested and charged with conspiracy to commit murder and served three years. She got a much lighter sentence than five survivors who were given 40-year sentences for their role in the deaths of the four ATF agents. That night, the FBI cut the power again, and the Davidians used it as a reason not to come out. The FBI hoped the cold night would encourage more Davidians to give up, but the adults who were left still believed they had a lot to lose. Koresh had been teaching them for years that if they left, they could kiss goodbye eternal life. Over the next week, infinitesimal progress was made. The FBI used torture techniques, including bright lights to disrupt people's sleep. They played loud music and disturbing sounds, including the screams of dying rabbits. On March 19th, Koresh said he was ready to surrender. Two other adult men left the compound, but not Koresh. Over the coming days, another seven adults came out. One of them, Rita Riddle, later said that she saw federal forces flipping the bird from their tanks and mooning the Branch Davidians. 
She said that behavior made the Branch Davidians feel even more strongly like they were on the right side of things. Who were these crude men who had no respect for God? That's a strong example of the significant disconnect between what negotiators were saying and the behavior the Branch Davidians witnessed from the tactical forces stationed closest to them. On March 22nd, the FBI teams met to discuss next steps. There was still no agreement about the best way forward. Negotiators still believed there was a path to a peaceful resolution, but the more aggressive voices of tactical leaders were getting louder. On March 23rd, one more adult left the compound, British citizen Livingston Fagan. On the 20-year anniversary of the fiery end to the standoff, Fagan was still a believer. He said, quote, I didn't want to go, but I was asked to do so by David. In the event that we were all killed, there needed to be some voices outside to tell the story from our point of view, end quote. Fagan was arrested after he came out. The next few days saw little movement. Koresh went silent. The FBI's game of brinksmanship yielded no tangible results. During March 29th to 31st, a representative of Attorney General Janet Reno met with FBI officials about the infighting among the feds. Koresh was allowed to talk to his lawyer for the first time. On April 1st, Koresh agreed that they would come out after Passover, one of the most important holidays to the Branch Davidians. The same day Koresh talked to his lawyers, religious scholars Phil Arnold and Jim Tabor appeared on a talk show and interpreted the Book of Revelation as it applied to the standoff in an attempt to reach Koresh in his own language. On April 4th, Koresh again told his lawyers that they'd all come out after Passover. They observed Passover on the 5th. On the 7th, Koresh refused to agree to an exit date. The feds revisited the idea of a tear gas plan. We heard David Thibodeau's version of Koresh's story about his vision on Mount Sion. On April 8th, Koresh told an FBI negotiator the same story, which we have in transcript form. It may help our listeners appreciate a bit more clearly what Koresh was like during these calls. I'll read Koresh, and Vanessa's going to read The Negotiator. And so there's only one acid test for anybody that claims to be enlightened in regards to the knowledge of God. Show me the seals. And if they can't, then they have to wait until somebody can. David, how did you get the point where you can interpret the seals? Well, in 1985, I was in Israel, and there was these Russian cosmonauts that were... Well, the reason I'm telling you about this is because we got two witnesses to this. The Russian cosmonauts gave the report that they saw seven angelic beings flying towards Earth with the wings the size of a jumbo jet. Okay, so what happened was in 1985, when I was in Israel, I met up with those people. Seriously. You met up with who? The two cosmonauts? No, no, no. See, the Russian cosmonauts were in their space station. Right. And they radioed down to their headquarters. They were terrified. Right, I can understand. That they saw seven angelic beings moving toward the Earth. Okay, and you met these seven angelic beings? Exactly. Where? In Israel. Yeah, but where in Israel? <laughs> On Mount Zion. Oh, okay. Okay, let me tell you something. It's awesome. Angels don't really have wings, but what they have is called a Merkava. A what? A Merkava. Which is? It's a, it's a spaceship. A spaceship. It's a vehicle. It, it travels by light, the refraction of light. Oh, okay. You know how the rainbow and all that? Yeah, this... Are you familiar with Eric von Daniken? Who's that? Chariot of the Gods. Yeah, well, you see, I got that film in 1986 or 87 because I was looking for documentation to try to explain to my students just exactly how I got the knowledge of the seals. Mm-hmm. When I was shown what would happen to me in regards to, after I presented this to the churches in the Book of Nahum, what happened was those chariots with flaming torches are tanks that were right here in the front yard. And I've been teaching this since 1985 to all my students, that there would come a day when this United States of America, right before its pending judgment, would actually bring tanks and stuff out here and confront us in regards to our religious views. But it would be under... It would be under false accusation. So, But the thing with Ezekiel, they could also be interpreted as spaceships. It is. But see, when we look at our spaceships, we're looking at NASA. We're looking at rocket-propelled vehicles, right? Now, we're, now that's a reality. We've gone to the moon, haven't we? Yes. We're spacemen. See, our technology has finally advanced like Daniel said it would. When much knowledge will be increased is one of the signs of the of the book of Daniel being opened. 
because it was sealed to the time of the end, just like all the other prophecies. So what happens to me literally happened to me didn't just happen to me so I could say, wow, man, I was taken up past Orion and it was it was wild. And I saw this and saw and I was... Was there anyone with you when this happened, David? Absolutely not. Well, suffice it to say that conversation went on much, much longer. And there are hundreds of tapes of those negotiation conversations between the FBI and Koresh. On April 9th, 41 days into the standoff, Koresh sent four letters to the FBI. One said, the heavens are calling you to judgment. It's signed Yahweh Koresh, which translates to God death. The FBI enlisted psychological experts to analyze the letters. They disagreed slightly on Koresh's state of mind, but essentially considered him to be in a highly paranoid state and possibly psychotic. And they agreed that he has no intention of coming out. It's worth noting that on top of everything that was already going on with Koresh from a psychological perspective, he was still healing from a serious gunshot wound. The toll that takes on the body and mind is significant. Even when the bullet exits the body, there's a high risk of infection from the residue. He must have been in significant pain. April 9th was Easter Sunday. It came and went. The following day, the tear gas plan was presented to Attorney General Janet Reno. She was told that it would be implemented incrementally, driving the Branch Davidians to untainted areas of the compound and eventually out to safety. Repeatedly, Reno asked, why now? Why not wait? But she was eventually persuaded to take action. The following day, Koresh said he wouldn't come out until God told him to. But God had remained silent on the subject. A ray of hope arrived on April 14th, Koresh said that he needed to write a manuscript of his interpretation of the seven seals. When that was complete, then he would come out. Meanwhile, government officials continued to explore the tear gas plan. Military experts were consulted about its possible effects on children. Reno was told it should have no permanent impact on their health. On April 16th, Koresh reported that he finished his writings on the first seal— Reno rejected the tear gas plan based on the current findings, but it remained under discussion. On April 18th, Branch Davidians held their children up in the windows of a tower that the FBI had told them was off-limits because of its tactical value as a shooting turret. The Davidians also held up a sign that said, Flames Await. The next day, April 19th, the FBI negotiator warned over a loudspeaker that the Branch Davidians were under arrest and tear gas was going to be deployed. Around 6 a.m., the FBI used two combat engineering vehicles, CEVs, to knock holes in the building and insert tear gas into the compound through spray nozzles attached to a boom. The Davidians started firing on the feds. The FBI held their fire, but increased its actions, adding more gas. By 9.30, one of the CEVs widened a hole in the compound walls for people to escape. By 11 a.m., things seemed to be going well for the FBI, all things considered, and Reno went to an unrelated meeting. At 11.45, one of the back walls of the compound collapsed. The Branch Davidians resumed firing on the FBI from multiple positions. Just after noon, several fires erupted within the compound. Behind the scenes, the FBI scrambled to get fire trucks on scene, but they weren't in position nearby. They were way out at the staging area. The FBI called for Koresh to come out and lead the Branch Davidians to safety. Nine members exited the compound and were arrested, including the drummer David Thibodeau. Shortly after, the sound of gunfire came from inside the compound. The FBI believed the remaining followers were either killing themselves or each other. It wasn't until almost 12.45 that the FBI was able to begin firefighting efforts. Those last nine people to come out were the sole survivors of the blaze. After the fire was put out, 76 Branch Davidians were found dead. 22 children from babies to age 13 died in a bunker where they were hidden with the remaining women. This number includes two brand new infants whose births were induced by the trauma of the tear gas assault and fire. Four children were Wayne Martins, and DNA testing proved that 14 of the children, including the trauma-born infants, were David Koresh's biological children. Seven teenagers, aged 14 to 19, died. Of the adults who died, 23 were Americans, one was Australian, 20 were British, most with Jamaican origins, one was Canadian, 
One was Israeli, and one was a New Zealander. Twenty people had gunshot wounds, including five children. A three-year-old was stabbed. These are suspected to be mercy killings committed by the Branch Davidians when they realized they'd reached the point of no return in the blaze. David Koresh died beside Steve Schneider. They both sustained fatal gunshot wounds. The order of their death wasn't decisively determined, but it seemed likely that Steve had first shot Koresh in the forehead and then himself. Whether Koresh and his followers had anything to do with the fire that ultimately claimed their lives or not, the government's final conclusion was that the Branch Davidians were at fault for refusing to comply with orders to leave the compound. The controversy surrounding what happened that day at Mount Carmel, the government reports and investigations, as well as the conspiracy theories, are so voluminous we can't begin to detail them here. Suffice it to say, there were serious mistakes made by the FBI. And the Branch Davidians, who remained till those final hours, were extremely reluctant to come out. The government investigations ultimately found Koresh to be at fault for the deaths, but that hasn't stopped fierce debate and anti-government militia types still cite what happened at Waco as a prime example of gross government overreach. As with many controversies, the facts can look very different depending on the lens you view them through. But some things are incontrovertible. One of them is that posthumous DNA testing confirmed that Koresh fathered children with underage girls. Had he been tried in court, he would have been charged with a number of counts of statutory rape at the very minimum. That's one point that many people, including those who believe strongly in the religious freedom the Constitution protects, have a very hard time with. And it's a prime example of how Koresh wielded his power over his followers. How did Koresh convince so many parents to let him hurt their children, to lead so many people to their graves? Citing American psychologist and philosopher William James, neuroscientist Oliver Sacks wrote, quote, An acute and passionate religious conviction in a single person can sway thousands, end quote. After leaving the Branch Davidians, after Koresh announced new light, Robin Buns had no lingering affection for Koresh. Quote, he was really nice. He was humble. He was very well-mannered. Over the years, though, he's lost a lot of those qualities. He's become this obnoxious, foul-mouthed, pushy person because of the power he has over these people." End quote. Her mother, who left months after Robin, said, quote, "...even after all he's done to my family, it's hard for me. I've seen both sides of him." End quote. Even with these two women from the same family, they had different views of who Koresh was and what he meant to them. Years later, Kathy Schroeder said, I never really wanted to be there. But she figured if Koresh was a real prophet, she would go to heaven forever. And if he weren't, her blood would be on his hands. For her, that seemed like a calculated risk to take. Another mother who left the compound early in the standoff mentioned Koresh 24 times in an hour-long interview. She never mentioned her husband or children who would later die in the fire. Koresh's power was nothing short of intoxicating to many. Livingston Fagan was sitting in a jail when the fire broke out. His children had come out of the compound before him, but he watched the blaze that killed his wife and mother on TV from his cell. He served 14 years on convictions for voluntary manslaughter and a weapons offense. His kids were raised by his brother back in the UK. Since Fagan's release, he's occasionally seen his kids, but they're in their 20s now, with lives of their own. Fagan is still a believer. The legacy of the Waco tragedy has lived on. A private memorial to the victims was created on the grounds at Mount Carmel. It includes the names of everyone who died there. Except for David Koresh. Koresh's legacy has lived on in other ways. Remember Waco became a slogan for anti-government militia movement members. The tragedy inspired Oklahoma City bomber Timothy McVeigh to detonate a truck bomb at the Oklahoma Federal Building exactly two years later. Survivors of the Branch Davidians have an annual gathering on April 19th, but they don't hold it at Mount Carmel, as many don't want to go there. Every child who was released has had to find their own way. Some have struggled more than others. Some lost the only family they knew. Wayne Martin's wife continued to take their son to Branch Davidian services. One of Koresh's sons struggled with how deeply everyone hated his father. David Koresh still has a handful of followers throughout the world, but their leader is gone, for now. They believe he will come back again to help usher in the end of days. 
There's no public memorial to the tragedy that happened at Mount Carmel. People in Waco would rather not be known by what happened there. Today, the windswept Branch Davidian compound, just 10 miles outside of the Texas town of Waco, is mostly in ruins. A handful of religious groups have made it their home over the years, but it's never gained much vitality. The land is still scarred by that April 19, 1993 fire and haunted by the tragic loss of life. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Join us next Tuesday for a brand new episode of Cults. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Joel Stein and Carrie Murphy. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Jeanette Manning. Cults is written by M.W. Wilson and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 